morning, family. It's a pleasure to be back. I was down in uh, Florida this past week uh, at the National Fellowship Conference, and uh, it was a, a great time to just reconnect with individuals uh, and churches that we are a part of. Uh, and I just love how we had a chance to hear from Ray and Catherine today uh, about their heart and desire to go spread the gospel because what we are doing here is what so many churches within our fellowship are doing across the country and across the world. Uh, and it just is so encouraging uh, to know that we are not alone in this, right? That as brothers and sisters in Christ, we can't walk this journey alone and we have each other to do that. Uh, and we have a wider sphere of churches with the same thing. So I was excited to be a, a part of that this past week. Uh, but it's always good to be back uh, home with, with my family and, and back with you guys. So we've been going through, again, I have sinned, looking at individuals that have made confessions out to God uh, and what that heart looks like and what that response is from God. Now, I've recently had a chance to watch the Jesus Revolution movie, the story of Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel, and Greg Laurie, who starts Harvest Church and goes on to be known for Harvest Crusade. Uh, and this was a revival that happened around in the, the 60s and 70s. It was a revival that, that really engaged the, the counterculture of the time, the, the hippies of the time period. And as many of them were, were looking for something different, you know, many of them thought drugs as a solution to their problems. Uh, but what Chuck Smith and Greg Lurie were able to do was point people that that was not the solution, but it was the saving grace of Jesus Christ that would connect with them and reach their hearts. And so as a result, we see this revival happen uh, in this time period where these individuals are giving their hearts over to Christ. And revival typically happens where there's uh, an intense time of spiritual brokenness uh, and that as they hear the word of God, it, it, it just resonates with them. And one of the things that often happens is there's this abrupt change in their lives, that they're living one way and then all of a sudden the gospel captures who they are and now they're living completely different, you know, and as oftentimes we would say that their hearts are on fire for Jesus. And there's been lots of revivals that have occurred throughout our history and our country, uh, but let's be honest, there is always broken people in this world and there's always a good time for revival. And so I think we pray for revivals. And when they happen, we praise God and we rejoice. And when it seems that revival is coming to a close, then we pray for the next one because the harvest fields are always ripe with people that need to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we look today at Josiah and 2 Kings 22, we're going to see this desire for revival. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up 2 Kings chapter 22. Uh, and again, the kingdom has split between the, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, Israel pretty much does evil all the way through. Judah tends to do a mixture of some good and bad. Uh, but by the time Josiah comes along in 640 B.C., 
Israel has already been taken into captivity. They've been taken over by the Assyrians. Uh, and it's not going to be too much longer before Judah follows suit uh, in its process. Judah's got about another 80 years before they're captured and taken into captivity as well, facing the same fate. Only this time it'll be the Babylonians and not the Assyrians that will take them over. And Josiah really is the last of the good kings uh, of Judah at this point. After Josiah is done, essentially it's just a, a downward uh, spiral uh, into destruction with the rest of the kings. And, and as the leadership would go of these time periods, you know, some would do right and some would do wrong, some would do good, some would do bad, but the people were either reaping the blessings of that leadership or experiencing the consequences and curses of that leadership as well. Uh, and so Josiah here, again, is going to be a good guy in this process. Now, just, but to, to back up, we have to go back a chapter. Josiah's father, uh, Manasseh, uh, took the throne when he was 12 years old. He ruled for about 55 years. And in 21 verse 2, it says, He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Following the detestable practices of the nations, the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. So Manasseh was not a good king. And he actually was so bad that he went on that he started to build all of these statues uh, and these idols to the pagan gods that surrounded them. And, and he, he built it to the Baal and the Asherah. And these typically were, were the gods and goddesses of the crops and fertility. Uh, but what made it worse was that Manasseh was actually building these idols in the temple of the Lord. So again, Solomon had built a temple. David and Solomon built a temple where God would dwell. He would know after traveling the ark and the tent. And he's putting idols where God's dwelling was. And Manasseh goes on and he practices sorcery. And he's consulting the Medians. He's shedding innocent blood. He even sacrifices his own son to the pagan god. So Manasseh is not a very good guy. And it says that he led people astray and it was so bad that in verse 11, it said he did more evil than the Amorites. And if you were here last week, we talked about the Amorites who, who, who attacked God's people as they came out of the desert. And the Amorites in Numbers 31 were eventually destroyed for how bad they were. So God is basically saying, you are worse than the people that I killed that were the pagans. You're supposed to be following me, but your heart is just bent on evil this entire time. And God is so angry that he says, look, I'm going to I'm going to destroy these people. I'm going to destroy my, my people and destroy Jerusalem. And so uh, Manasseh dies and his son Amon takes over. And in verses 21 and 22, it says, He did evil in the eyes of the Lord as his father Manasseh had done. He followed completely the ways of his father, worshiping the idols his father had worshiped and bowing down to them. So Amon was so bad that he actually only lasted two years in leadership. And then his own officials came and assassinated him. OK, so so Josiah's grandfather is really evil. His father is evil and his father is killed. And as a result, he takes the throne at the age of eight. So eight years old, Josiah is now put in as the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. Now this is what takes us to chapter 22. And in verse 2, 
It, it gives a character description of who Josiah is going to be. It said he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed completely the ways of his father, David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. So Josiah's life is going to be characterized by following God, right? He's not going to veer to the right or the left. He's going to stay focused on exactly what it is that God wants him to do. But isn't it interesting right there that it says his father is David? Because I, we just read that his actual father was Amon, not David. But what the scripture is trying to do is make that spiritual connection between the life of Josiah and the life of David and saying Josiah was such a righteous man that he followed in the ways of David, who again we've learned about before, was a man after God's own heart. Okay, so that sets up the stage for who Josiah is. So now we can read here, 2 Kings 22, I'm going to start in verse 3. It says, in the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent the secretary, Shaphan, son of Azalea, the son of Meshulam, to the temple of the Lord. He said, go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, and have him get ready the money that has been brought into the temple of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have collected from the people. Have them entrust it to the men appointed to supervise the work on the temple. And have these men pay the workers who repair the temple of the Lord, the carpenters, the builders, and the masons. Also have them purchase timber and dressed stone to repair the temple. But they need not account for the money entrusted to them because they are acting faithfully. So Josiah wants some work done in the temple. He says, listen, we've got the money for it. Go get the money. Make sure you give it to the workers. I'm not concerned about getting a receipt. I trust that these guys are going to do really, really well. So, so go in there, get the money and start paying these guys. So now we come to verse eight. Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shaphan, who read it. Then Shaphan, the secretary, went to the king and reported to him, Your officials have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the workers and supervisors at the temple. Then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. So Hokiah goes in and he gets the money. And as he's looking around for the money, he finds this book. He finds the book of the law. And you're probably thinking, I don't understand this because shouldn't they have the book of the law? Well, again, we have to remember Manasseh has been filling this temple with all kinds of pagan idols and statues. And I have to imagine that, that as he's doing this, as Josiah's grandfather's doing this, he's like, you know what, move that lampstand to the Lord. Get it out of the way. We're going to put this pagan god statue here. You know, move the temple, move the wash basin over there. We're going to slide some other statues into it. And, and all of this stuff is getting moved around. And it's all of the temple, the articles of the temple, the God, you know, just, just shove it in the closet over there. We don't need that stuff anymore. And so I kind of envision that there's all this clutter inside the temple. And Hokai is like wandering in there. He's like looking for the money. And he, he goes in there and he, he pulls out this book. And it's probably covered in dust. And he blows on it. Right? And the dust just flies up in the air. And he's, he's looking at it. And he's like, oh my gosh. It's the book of the law. I've heard about this thing. Now again, who is Hokiah? Hokiah is the high priest. 
He's the one that's supposed to know where this thing is. And when we talk about the book of the law and we talk about it in the, the scriptures, it's what we say is the Pentateuch. It's the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And in there is where God gives the history of his people. But he also gives the instructions for how his people are to live faithfully with him. And so this book has just been collecting dust and it's been hidden away in the temple of the Lord. And so Hilkiah comes and he, he tells Shaphan, the secretary, who's kind of the personal advisor, the assistant to the king. And he says, look, I, I went out, I got the money, I gave it to him. But he said, look, I, I also found this book here. And he gives it to Shaphan. And I love how it, it says there uh, that he, Shaphan takes it and he reads it to the king and he's like, hey, I got this book. Like he's not even like this is the book of the law. There's just really no reverence or understanding for what Shaphan is holding. But he opens it up and he starts to read it to King Josiah. And now verse 11. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hokai, the high priest, Achaim, son of Shaphan, Akbor, son of Micaiah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Isaiah, the king's attendant. Go and inquire the Lord for me and for the people and for all of Judah about what is written in the book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that was written concerning us. Hilkiah the priest, Hakim, Akbar, Shaphan, and Isaiah went to speak with the prophetess Huldah, who was the wife of Shalom, son of Tikvah, the son of Haris, keeper of the wardrobe, and she lived in Jerusalem in the second district. Shaphan takes the book to the king and he starts reading it. And when Josiah hears it, he just tears his robes. And if you don't know, again, the, the tearing of the robes, the putting on of sackcloth, the, the putting on of ash or, or dust on the head. Th this was an ancient practice to signify great remorse and guilt and sorrow for what has happened in their lives. This was a, an outward expression of an inward feeling of what was going on in a man's heart. So, so Josiah, when he hears the word of God, has this deep conviction of guilt and sin and is like, we have not been living the way that God wanted us to. What have we done? And so again, he rips his robes off. And so he's, he recognizes and he expresses this and he says, guys, the Lord's anger has burned against us for what we have failed to be doing. And so he says, we need to figure this out. And so he, he sends his people and he says, look, I don't even really understand all of this myself. So go figure out what's going on. And he sends them over to go see the prophetess Huldah. So she can explain to them what's going to happen. And so they go to meet her. Now we're in verse 15. She said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Tell the man who sent you to me. This is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on this place and its people. 
according to everything written in the book, the king of Judah has read. Because you have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and provoked me to anger by all of their idols, their hands have made. My anger will burn against them and this place will not be quenched. Tell the king of Judah who sent you to inquire the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says concerning the words you have heard. Because your heart was humbled, because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord. When you heard what I have spoken against this place and its people, that they would become accursed and laid waste. And because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your fathers and you will be buried in peace. And your eyes will not see all of the disaster that I am going to bring on this place. And so they took her answer back to the king. So they go and they share what has happened and she's got this information and the prophetess Hilda actually reads out of Deuteronomy chapter 29. Now I don't know how much was read, but Deuteronomy chapter 28, 29 and 30 is kind of the culmination of all of God's instructions of the Pentateuch. That after he said, here's how I want you to live in the book of Leviticus and numbers and the do's and don'ts and the rules and all of the celebration and feasts, he says, look, in 28, he says, if you obey, there will be blessing. And then the second half of 28, 29 and 30, God says to his people in Deuteronomy, if you fail to obey, there is going to be destruction. And here are all of the curses that are laid out for you. And so she quotes out of Deuteronomy chapter 29. And this is why I'm assuming that when Josiah hears the book read, he tears his robe because he understands the destruction that now lies for God's people. And he is broken over this. And she says, look, because you have angered the Lord, you will face destruction. Disaster is coming for you. But she says of Josiah, because you humbled yourself, because you were responsive to my word, you're going to die in peace. I will spare you the misery of seeing what is about to come. And so they go back to the king and Josiah hears about this now, verse 23. Then the king called together all of the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went to the temple with the men of Judah, the people of Israel, the priests and the prophets, and all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all of the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple. And the king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, regulations and decrees with all of his heart and his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all of the people pledged themselves to the covenant. And the king ordered Hilkiah, the high priest, the priests next in rank and the doorkeepers to remove from the temple of the Lord all of the articles made for Baal and Asherah and all of the starry hosts. He burned them outside in Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron Valley and took the ashes to Bethel. He did away with the pagan priest and appointed by the kings of Judah to burn incense on the high places of the towns and on those around Jerusalem. 
Those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and moon, to the constellations and all the starry hosts. He took the Asherah pole from the temple of the Lord to the Kidron Valley outside Jerusalem and burned it there. He ground it to powder and scattered the dust over the graves of the common people. And he turned down the quarters of the male shrine prostitutes who were in the temple of the Lord and where women did weaving for Asherah. So Josiah says, everybody, come here. You need to listen to this. You need to listen to how we have violated the commands of God because this is how we need to live. And in response to this, he gets all of the stuff out of the temple and he says, we're taking it to the Kidron Valley. And if you don't know, that was the place that was basically the giant garbage dump and heap pile where they would burn everything. And they take it all there and they burn it. And he says, get rid of the temple prostitutes and get rid of all of the priests, all of those that have been worshiping Baal and leading our people in destruction. We're gathering them together. And so the rest of 23 continues to go on about how he's getting all of these different shrines and he's going to the high places and he's saying, tear them down, burn them into a fine powder. Let's destroy them as much as we possibly can. And those priests of Baal, well, he slaughters them because they are not allowed any longer to lead our people in deception and destruction. And it ends in, in 23, verse 24. It says, furthermore, Josiah got rid of the mediums and spiritists, the household gods, the idols and the other detestable things seen in Judah and Jerusalem. And this he did to fulfill the requirements of the law written in the book that Hilkiah the priest had discovered in the temple of the Lord. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all of his heart and with his soul, with all of his strength in accordance with the law of Moses. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn away from the heat of his fierce anger, which burned against Judah because all of that Manasseh had done to provoke him to anger. So the Lord said, I will remove Judah also from my presence, as I have removed Israel, and I will reject Jerusalem, the city I chose, and this temple about which I said, there shall my name be. So Josiah has a heart for God. He confesses, he repents, he does what needs to be done and rids the evil from the land. Yet God's anger still burned against his people. And he said, destruction is coming. And so there's, there's two things that we can learn from Josiah. And there's two things that we learn about God here. And, and that's what I want to flush out now. Remember, Josiah grew up in a land for about 75 years where they didn't know the Lord, right? God's temple was filled with pagan idolatry. That's what they understood. Josiah didn't know what was going on. He didn't know all of this was wrong. This is what he grew up with. This is what my grandfather taught me, and this is what my father taught me, and now I'm king at eight years old. And oftentimes in life, we will try to claim ignorance of the law. We, we feel like because I didn't know it was wrong that I shouldn't be held accountable for committing wrong. Well, ignorance of the law, guys, is no excuse. You know, I, I can't commit a crime 
And when the police show up at my house, go, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't understand what I did was wrong. Um, you probably should just go home and let me be. I, I, I completely forgot about it. So it's okay, we're good, right? I can't do that. You can't do that. Now that may help get a lesser sentence. Somebody might feel bad for you, but it doesn't excuse and wash away the things that we have done. Because see, the law rests upon certain premises, right? There are certain understandings about how the law works. And when we speak about ignorance of the law, one of the things that we need to realize is that you and I always have the ability to understand what the law says. It's not like government has made a law and then said, we're not going to tell anyone. We're just going to wait till they commit a crime and then say, I got you. No. What does government do? It makes a law and then it tells everybody what the law is. And if you don't understand it, you and I have the capability to go and figure out what the law actually says. And the second thing, the law is based on an innate sense of morality of right and wrong. That if you don't know whether you should do this or not, you basically go to your conscience and your sense of morality and say, what would be the logical thing that I should do or not do? You know, we were at camp this past summer and they pretty much said we've got two rules. Don't do anything that would make a, a problem for anybody in this world. And I thought, boy, that pretty much sums up every rule. So when Josiah reads the book of the law, he could have tried to argue, God, I, I, I didn't understand this. Boy, I didn't know we were supposed to be worshiping you this way. I mean, we, we lost it, God. I'm really, really sorry, but, you know, I, I didn't know. But what does Josiah do? He takes a proper posture. And when he realized that he and the rest of Judah were unexpected sinners. He professed his guilt and he acknowledged before God how they have violated the commands of God. And so he tears his robe to express his gravity to God saying, God, I am so sorry. And I think we should take heed to that because I think if we're honest, what are we quick to do? We're quick to defend ourselves, right? Well, we're the ones that we are quick to point out all of the good things that we've done. You know, when we make a mistake and we didn't know about it, you're like, oh, I know. But but look at all the wonderful things that I've done in my life. Shouldn't that mean more? Shouldn't that count for something? Again, if we remember and understand who we are, that you and I are sinners at the very core of our hearts, you know what we should be doing the next time we're accused of something wrong? We should go, you're right, I am guilty. Now please tell me what I've done wrong so I can agree with it because that is the nature of who I am. I am a sinful and evil human being. And so if you said I've done something wrong, I did. I just need to know what it is because I need to make right for it. And the second thing that we take away from this is about his actions. You know, she, she, the prophetess, again, prophesies destruction for, for God's people, but yet peace for Josiah. And I think this could have been a place where when Josiah hears this and understands that destruction is still coming, but he's got peace, 
he, he could have gone two other directions. He could have said, well, stinks for you guys. At least I'm in the clear. I'm just going to go about my day and you're going to leave you to your destruction. He could have also turned around and said, well, what does it matter at this point? We might as well leave the idols because God's going to come and destroy us anyway. But Josiah didn't choose that because see, true repentance doesn't live in that type of mentality. True repentance has a heart for God. And when he desires to follow the Lord, he's not following the Lord based on some tangible reward or blessing or some consequence or curse. Josiah is following the Lord because that is the right thing to do. See, the outcome of our lives should not dictate if I'm going to follow God or not. I don't follow God thinking that if I follow him, he's going to put a lot of money in my bank account. Then I'm going to start following him. No, we follow God because God is the sovereign authority of our lives and he is the savior of who we are. And so in Josiah's case, he says, God, I want to follow you. And it doesn't matter what's going to happen on the other side, but I'm going to do right. And I'm going to rid the temple and I'm going to rid this land of all of the evil. And it doesn't matter that you're going to come and destroy these people because right now, God, I have heard your word and your word has caused me to follow you. And that's what needs to be done. One commentator would say of, of Josiah's life, it says, he demonstrates proper motivation, proper sensitivity to God's word and proper obedience to the Lord. He recognizes sin. He confesses of it. And then he repents. He doesn't try to excuse what has happened. But instead, he chooses to follow the Lord. So ignorance is no excuse. Humility should be the proper posture and that we follow Christ regardless of what happens. And what do we learn about God here? Well, this is a great example where we continue to see the beauty of God's character. God is a just God, a God of justice and righteousness and holiness. But God is also a God of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And we see this being played out here that God's in his infinite wisdom and his sovereign authority can perfectly walk both lines with his people. Because again, when the prophetess comes, she again says, because they have forsaken me and burned incense and aroused my anger, their hands have made me angry and my anger will burn against them and it will not be quenched. God said, listen, you messed up and there's a consequence for that. And you're going to have to deal with that because I am a God of justice. Owen Strand, a, a present day theologian, said this. He said, while an apology does not represent a right response to sin. Or I'm sorry, while an apology does represent a right response to sin, it does not sweep away any real problems related to sin. 
One cannot expect upon apologizing that all consequences have now been canceled and there's nothing further to discuss. Instead, an apology is often the beginning of a longer, even much longer process of unwinding what went wrong that necessitated an apology. And while the believer's sin is wholly forgiven in Christ, we cannot miss in biblical terms that there are yet effects of our sin. And even more, we must work through our sin in order to understand it, fight it, and seek to defeat it. And he continues on, and just to, to paraphrase his, his last several points, he says, though God has forgiven our sin and repentance is right and glorify God, it does not erase the seriousness of the consequences of our actions. See, we, we often like to think that if I just say I'm sorry and I give an apology, that absolves any wrongdoing. Again, don't miss the point that we are forgiven in Christ, that when we come to him, our sins are forgiven for all of eternity. But we still have to wrestle with the uh, physical consequences of the world in which we live now. I can't go out and rob a bank. I can't go out and commit murder and then go, I'm sorry, and not expect anything to happen to me. There are consequences that we must deal with. And if I live in that type of mentality that just says that anytime I say I'm sorry, I'm good, all sorry becomes is a selfish act of sorrow that helps to get me out of the consequence. And it's not really a true sorrow that happens. Because when we're truly sorry, we're willing to bear the consequences that exist because we understand the justice of God. You know, the, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah for two and three hundred years have been violating the commands of God. For two and three hundred years, they have not followed what God wanted them to do. They can't just turn around and go, God, we finally get it. Sorry, just ignore everything that's happened up until this point. Because what they have done has caused destruction and death for people all around them. You know, it's amazing that God had not dealt with his people sooner than that. I mean, it's amazing the fact that God said you are going to face exile and captivity, but allows them to go on for two and three hundred years. Quite frankly, God should have just done it right away. But God is good that way. And Josiah confesses, but God's children still needed to learn their waywardness. And so he's going to bring that upon them. Now, the other side to this, though, is, again, what do we see? Right. We see the justice of God, but we also see the mercy of God. And again, when when the prophet speaks of Josiah, she says, because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I've heard you, declares the Lord I will gather you to your ancestors and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see the disaster that I'm going to bring. That as much as God continues with justice for his people, he turns to Josiah and says, you know what? I'm going to spare you the misery of what my people are going to see because you humbled yourself. You desired 
my heart, Josiah. And just like David was a man after my own heart, I get it, and so are you. And so I'm going to bury you in peace. I'm not going to have you witness what's about to come and endure the misery that my people are going to experience. And so we see the justice of God. And at the very same moment, we see the forgiving grace and mercy of God. And this is all throughout the scripture where God beautifully weaves his character throughout his people. And again, there is no better place that we see the weaving of God's character than at the hills of Calvary. That when you and I were destined to die in our sins, God instead chose to send his son, Jesus Christ, to take the weight of our sins upon his shoulders, to take it and be nailed to the cross, to endure the scorn and the shame and the physical beating and to have the nails pierce his hands and his feet and a crown of thorns placed upon his head and a spear shoved into his side so that the justice of God could be done. And at the very same moment that the justice of God is done, so is the mercy of God extended to us. That the shedding of his blood is what gives us the forgiveness of our sins. And that he says, if you are willing to embrace me as your Lord and Savior, you are my child and you will be buried in peace and experience the joy of my eternal kingdom. In 1 Peter 2, says he himself bore our sins in the body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So you and I can try to play dumb before God. You and I can try to play ignorance that we didn't know what was going on, but that does not absolve us of the guilt that we have done. And it doesn't get rid of the fact that you and I are sinners that are condemned to hell. But what matters is what happens when we hear the word of God. That when we hear the word of God spoken to us, does it pierce our hearts like a knife? Does the word of God convict us so much that we get on our knees and we cry out to him and we praise him and we say to God, God, what do I need to do now moving forward? Because I am a sinner in need of a savior. The word of God should humble our hearts when we hear it. And it should guide us into the holiness that he desires. Because just like the people of Judah, we are all sinners. And sometimes we are unexpected sinners, not knowing that we have done wrong. But thank goodness that God knew a savior was coming. Let's pray. Father, I continue to pray for conviction. Lord, this series is, is, is my desire to bring us to your feet. 
Lord, we know your laws, we know your rules, we know your holy commands, and we violate them, and you forgive us. And Lord, I pray that we are convicted of the ones that we don't understand that we're doing. And Lord, there are many times where we think we might even be doing right and good in your name. And Lord, you just shake your head and say, you're, you're, you're missing the mark. But Lord, I thank you and praise you that, again, you just don't cast us aside and you just don't leave us our, our own destruction. But Father, you, you have redeemed and saved us. Make us people that are of your holiness and righteousness. Give us a heart, Father, to do what Josiah did and to take those idols and smash them into a powder. To rid the, the evil that lies within our hearts and within our lives, Father, that we would take those very steps and not just cry out a confession of guilt, but to repent and to chase after you with all of our heart and mind and soul, Father. Thank you for loving us. Amen.